0: This morning because uh, we're reaching a point where we're finishing out the series on prayer. I'm going to try to cover two of them this morning very briefly just to to complete the series. But next week, Pastor and I have been talking about it. And in light of uh, world circumstances and the circumstances here in the United States, especially uh, our home uh, country, and uh, we want to revisit uh, eschatology. And so we're going to begin next week with the book of Daniel. And then uh, following it, we will go right into Revelation. Uh, Revelation is built on Daniel. And so you have to understand it before you can really appreciate Revelation. And some of you will say, well, yeah, I've, I've heard all that. Well, hopefully I will be able to contribute to your understanding uh, through the series but I think we also need to remember, like Peter said uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, I need to remind you. So we need constantly to be reminded of what the scriptures say, and that's what we want to do starting next week. So we'll start eschatology in the book of Daniel next week. I think it'll be fun. And by the way, it has a number of prayers in it, one in particular, how to pray for your nation by looking at how Daniel prayed for Israel. So that will be next week. Now, there's a couple other things because of the time I want to mention here rather than I would, as I normally do, mention it at the end. When we talk about prayer life, child of God, we'll get to a passage in just a second, but we need to understand that we need to have some kind of means that will allow us to focus on what we're praying for. The other day, I happened to be aware of the time slot because of something that was going on. I had, I had a prayer time that lasted about an hour and a half. Well, if you do that, it can become mentally exhausting uh, in order to stay on focus. And one of the things that happens is, I think it's the devil, but sometimes it's the flesh, we allow things to come into our mind. Oh, I've got to remember to do that today. And it disrupts our prayer time. Here's a little key. In my devotional Bible in the front, I have a little sticky pad. And that little sticky pad, if I have something that interrupts me, something I've got to do, and I don't want to worry about it work, but go back to my prayer, I just write it down and stick it on the, on the table or next to my chair. And go on. So I always have a sticky pad. Uh, the second observation I would make, and I've mentioned this before, but I want to uh, emphasize it, write down, have a prayer list, and write down these major prayers and how they contribute. And you can use them in your own prayer life. Okay? And then the, the uh, final one is uh, I, and a layman up in a big church up in... <coughs> <clears throat> excuse me, in Pennsylvania, I shared this with me, and all of a sudden I realized, well, I do this, and it's a good idea. Sometimes your mind will wander, so the best way, one of the best ways to handle that is pray out loud, and that will keep you on focus. Uh, now, that means you've got to have a prayer closet somewhere where you can spend time with the Lord not... Worry about other people hearing what you're saying and so on. That makes sense. Three little hints of how to uh, to um, pray more effectively. Now I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 this morning. We'll begin at verse 29 and it goes through verse 5. And I told pastor before we went into this one, I said, the word prayer is not even mentioned in this text. He uses code words, and we'll see that. We can be able to justify that that is indeed what he's talking about. Uh, but it isn't, he, doesn't, he never says the word prayer. Now, let's talk about that a little bit. How do we know that this is Paul's uh, description of his prayer life? Well, I want you to look at verse 29 of chapter 1. For this purpose also I labor and strive according to his power, which mightily worketh within me. Now, if you go back to the context, and I'm not going to do it this morning, but if you will note that in verse 24, he talks about suffering being part of ministry and completing people in Christ. And then in verse 25 through verse 28, he talks about serving or speaking communicating, suffering, and then speaking to others so that they will be complete in Christ. See it? Now, those two uh, activities we understand are prayer activities or ministry activities. He suffers in order to, uh, to minister, and he also communicates. He speaks in order to minister. But notice verse 29. For this purpose also... Now go back to verse 28, the latter part of the verse. We proclaim him and admonish every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that, here's his purpose, every man may be complete in Christ. In other words, the pastor's job, my my class responsibility here is to help you to be complete in Christ. Okay? And then he says, for this purpose also. Verse 29, he's getting ready to talk about a third category of ministry that helps him help people to be complete in Christ. Am I making sense? This purpose also. Now, the second thing I want you to notice, that that implies that this is some kind of special ministry beyond speaking, communicating, and, and beyond the suffering. He's talking about how to complete people in Christ in another way. And you'll notice, secondly, that the term striving is the way it's translated. By the way, uh, when you do some work in Scripture in original languages, sometimes you get frustrated with the English translation because it camouflages the repetitive use of a word. Now, notice in verse 29, he uses the word striving. If you go to verse 1 of chapter 2, he talks about struggle. And uh, the bottom line is, they're both the same word in the Greek text. Okay? And I think that's important for you to see. Now, what he's talking about is somehow he is agonizing. He's working like a common laborer to help these people to become strong. But notice also as he's striving and agonizing, as the text will point it out in more detail in a minute, he's talking about a ministry that he is having while he's incorpor- incarcerated. He's in jail. But he is still striving and agonizing for people. But notice what else it says in the text. He He tells us he is praying for people That have never even seen his face. Chapter 1, or uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 4. So he's emphasizing a ministry beyond the people of Colossae while he's in jail. Now, that implies whatever he's doing, he's ministering to people he's never seen, and he's ministering to people while he's in jail. How's he able to do that? Answer. He's talking about prayer. Okay? Uh, one more thing that I would point out before we actually go to the text. The term striving or agonizing is used elsewhere as a reference to prayer. For example, in chapter 4 and verse 12, we have that word. And he says, laboring earnestly for you in my prayers. It. And in Romans, and you might want to write this down as another example, Romans chapter 15 and verse 30, he uses this terminology again to describe his prayer life. So I want to suggest to you that even though the word prayer is not used in this passage, it becomes obvious. And I've studied a lot of the commentaries, and they're coming to the absolutely the same conclusion. When you look at the text long enough long enough, and meditate on it, he's talking about prayer. Okay? Now, let's look at this prayer very quickly because I want to do another one within the time slot, and I don't want to have to rush any more than, than is necessary. When we talk about this passage, chapter 1, verse 29, through chapter 2, verse 5, describing his prayer life, he is praying... For a specific purpose. Notice that purpose in 29 in verse 1, or verse 1, chapter 28. So that we might present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also. What purpose? To uh, lead people to be complete in Christ. So he states it very clearly for us. That's what he's praying for these people. Secondly, he gives us a verbal picture as he describes it. Notice what he says in 29b. For this purpose also I labor and I am striving according to his power. Now, let's talk about those two metaphors. That's what they are. Laboring is a word that is used of a common laborer digging ditches, building the house, whatever. That's a, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I'm just saying people work hard to the point of exhaustion. And that's what he's describing. His prayer life is one that causes exhaustion. Now, understand that. When you pray long enough, that's what's going to happen. Uh, the second thing he uses, another metaphor, uh, for this purpose also i am la- i labor and i am striving the word striving is a word that's from the word uh agonon, which means uh, uh stadium uh, athletic stadium like a football stadium and the people that are in the stadium or what he calls here people that are uh According to his purpose, according to his striving. It's an agonizing thing. Uh, Football players, if you watch them, they have real tough workouts. Even in the summer when it's hot, they're struggling. And so he's describing his prayer life as one of being a common laborer that is absolutely exhausted when it's all over. And it's agony. That's how difficult his prayer life is. Now, can I just stop there a second and preach a little sermon to both all of us here? You know what? I'm not sure I've gotten to where Paul is, how he's describing. No wonder he had power with God. He's been that kind of agonizing, totally exhausting work of prayer. Amen? That's the picture. Then the third, he is praying with power. This is important. Look at it in the in the latter part of verse 29 again. According, I'm laboring and striving in accordance with His power. What power? Supernatural power. God's power working through His life. And then it says, which work, uh, which mightily worketh. That's a continuous word. It's a preposition prepositional participle that emphasizes the continuous action. He does this all the time. So it's God's power, and it is something that is working in him by God's grace as a powerful ministry uh, of prayer. And finally, he says it works mightily, powerfully in his life. Well, of course, it's God's power. So uh, the idea is, that it is a powerful prayer time that Paul has. And I think, with, and by the way, Greek word there is that word dunamis we talk about all the time, dynamite and so on. That's the word that's being used. It's a very common word in the New Testament. Now, that's Paul's prayer for a specific purpose. Then he talks about he's praying for a specific group of people, several groups as a matter of fact. If you look at the text in verse 1, for I want you to know how great a struggle agonizing uh, I have for those who uh, I have uh, on your behalf, that's the people at Colossae, and for those that are Laodicea, that's another church down the road a few kilometers, and for those who have not personally seen my face. So he's praying for three groups the Colossian people there in the city, for the people down the road at Laodicea, and for other people he's never seen before. Now, I'm going to stop when we we'll use the illustration. I have a friend that I ministered to in the military. Both of us had come back from Vietnam. Uh, Eldon Radon, Radon, his wife, helped Betty when she was struggling with our fourth child. That we ultimately lost. And uh, Alvin, who was the GI, he's in an independent Baptist church up in Wisconsin. He calls me about it every other week. And he says, John, I am loving listening to your Sunday school class. They're getting it all the way up in West. He said, I told my pastor, and his pastor is watching the Sunday school lesson. Then he said, I've been telling my other friends, and they're all listening. So welcome to the Bible class, Sunday school class, to Wisconsin. Amen? And that's what Paul's talking about here. There is a ministry that you can have to other people. This is one speaking with our modern technology, but you get the point. Now, the third thing I want you to see is Paul's prayer for a person. A specific provision. Notice what he says in uh, verse 2. That, I'm praying like this for all these people, so that their hearts may be encouraged. Encouragement. The text here is a word that means comfort, and it is a word that has a preposition attached, para, in front of it, which means along. So comforting by coming alongside. I, I translate it this way. Comforting strength. So he's praying for their hearts might have comforting strength. Now I want you to realize that's used throughout the scripture. I'll just give you an example or two. In Second Corinthians chapter 1, you look at verse 3 and 4. It'll say, blessed. Be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comforting strength. So when you're suffering and you gain from that, you can then share it so that you might share it with others who are going through uh, difficulties. Your experience can be a testimony and encouragement of strength and the lives of the people. Amen? Now, that's what he's praying for. Now, notice the, the requirement that comes with it. Notice what he says in 2B. I'll read the verse again. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. See it? In other words, folks, it's sort of like our families. We all have strength. If you have a normal, halfway normal family, you're going to be comforting one another. There's encouraging. There's a sense of security and comfort that comes within that family. And the parents will be teaching the young folk as they're growing up. And so this is a strengthening kind of thing. He's describing comfort that comes just like People that are functioning well in their family. Our church is a family, and we comfort one another. Sure, pastor is encouraging us in the Word, but we are encouraging each other all at the same time. See? So he says uh, that you may have this comforting strength, having been, notice that, this is a prerequisite, the requirement... Having been knit together in love, and having been knit together in love, out of that flows the comforting strength. See the structure of the sentence? Now, notice the end result that comes out of that child of God is found in the C part, the third part of verse 2. Notice what he said. Read the verse again. And their hearts may be encouraged, have comforting strength, having been knit together in love, and, result, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of knowledge. Now, let's stop. I haven't mentioned what this prayer is all about. This is a prayer, child of God, where we can pray like Paul, and we can carry encourage other people through our prayer life to have stability in their faith okay now in this text he already recognizes they have some stability but he wants them to grow beyond that level to a higher level so notice what he said he's going to talk about several results one that they'll have a theological understanding he describes it first of all, or declares that that's what he's doing, and attaining to all the the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Understanding of theology as we go through the rest of the prayer. But it's understanding, theological understanding. Now, he also begins to clarify it in the latter part of verse 2 all the way into verse 3. Notice what he says. What do you mean by full assurance? Well, he means the comprehension of the mystery of God. Look at it. He says, you might obtain to the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's wisdom, that is Christ himself. Now, look up here. There are a jillion different gods, many different religions and people are all trying to figure out how do you have some kind of relationship with God and most people end up saying well as long as you're sincere you can go through any way or any kind of religion it doesn't matter we're all worshiping the same God ad infinitum you've heard all of that Well, what Paul is talking about here is the key that unlocks the mystery about God is Jesus Christ. See it? So the full assurance of theological understanding that results in what? A comprehension of God's mystery, that is, who is Jesus Christ? What has he done? And what does he expect from me? See it? Now, the second thing that comes out of it is of what he calls the treasury of God. Notice what he says. After uh, the result in true knowledge of God's mystery that is in Christ, in whom, watch it, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that comes and allows us to have the full assurance of theological understanding. It's two parts to it, wisdom, knowledge. Now, I want to clarify those for you. Wisdom is more of a synthetical overview of theology. You know, synthetical, bringing it all together. It's like the pieces of a puzzle. Uh, some of my family are fanatics about puzzles. Now, I, I think the last one they did in our living room, they did everything but the one right in the center and they asked me to come over and put in because I didn't contribute at all. You know, I, I'm just not into it personally. Uh, but I'm not into a lot of things, come think about it. But it's like a puzzle. I do know that if you can get the pieces around the border it becomes easier to put pieces in the middle. And that's the word wisdom here. That is, it is the ability to begin to see the big picture, to have a love of the word that allows you to make some practical sense out of it. Now, there's treasury in theology. Amen? That's a treasure. That's a rich thing. When you can begin to see how all, this Bible all fits together and and understand it in a very uh, synthetical way. But then you have the word that is translated knowledge, and that's the more analytical th- approach. That is the data, and it's beyond the synthetical where I have an understanding. For example, you could go through Colossians and uh, – you could come up with an outline if you studied long enough. It would be similar to the one that I have here, I'm sure. But the bottom line is, because I have work in the languages and because I have all of the tools in my library, and I've got a slight advantage. And so I can go deeper with those individual parts of the puzzle. This part fits here, synthetical. But this part means this in particular. And beyond that, lo and behold, it also means this. See, that's the analytical side of it. You with me? So he says, I want you to have the full assurance of understanding. Well, what do you mean? I want you to understand the mystery of God, the key that unlocks the understanding of God. And secondly, that you'll be able to put all the pieces together, get the big picture a picture and then dig deeper and deeper and deeper. That's knowledge. Everybody with me? Now, it doesn't stop there. He wants us to know there is a reason why he's praying like this. And that reason is still valid today for you and me. Look at verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? I save this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. In other words, I want you to understand and have this full assurance that you have an understanding of theology, what the Bible's saying. Why? So nobody can fool you with their fancy arguments. Amen? And then he goes on. Why would I be concerned about that? He says. Notice. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, Paul says, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. There it is. He says, I am so excited about your stability in the faith, but I'm wanting you to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Got it? He's not satisfied with the level where they are. He said, I'm rejoicing in the stability of your faith, but I want you to have a full assurance that goes deeper and deeper, that wisdom and knowledge that brings the full assurance of theology. Everybody with me? Now, that's how I can pray for other people, so that they will be theologically stable. Now, pastor does that for us as he contributes to the understanding of the Word and challenges us with it. My job as a Sunday school teacher is to do the same thing. Now, we're to be working at it ourselves as individual believers, but beyond that, I need to be praying for you, and you need to be praying for me that we'll have that stability in faith. Everybody with me? Now... I want to go to another one this morning with the time that's left. All I've done is the prayers of Paul in the New Testament. I want to look at one of my favorites in the old, and that's Samuel 1. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll look at that together for just a few minutes. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to look at chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. Now, you know the story here. We're not sure who the author is. Some people say it may be Samuel himself, but it's really anonymous. doesn't identify the author. But it does talk about his birth, his mother, Hannah, uh, and the struggles that she was going through. And the Lord had closed her womb, the Bible says. And by the way, that is not unusual, especially for leaders in the Old Testament. Remember Abraham? Same thing. Uh, Remember uh, others as well. But notice it tells us some things here. Uh, For example, chapter one, verse five. We will lay a foundation, the context for the prayer. But to Hannah he would give, that is, the husband would give her a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. This was God's doing. It wasn't just something biological. It was something God did. Then there's the second problem that she faces. Her rival, the other wife, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her. Just think about that. Down through the years, uh, this uh, kind of provoking bitterly and irritating her because the Lord had closed her womb. Not only does she not, is not able to bear, but this rival wife is rubbing her nose in it and it just is irritating her year after year after year. Now, there's the context. Now, as a result of all of that, go to verse 11 in chapter 1 and we'll see how the picture ends. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and not forget your handmaid, it appears to her in a sense like well, God's not listening. Have you ever been there? Uh, and they said, and remember me, and do not forget your handmaid, but will give to your handmaid a son, then, what? I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. In other words, he's going to be totally dedicated to God. Comment. She went through all of this. She got discouraged and you can look at the text and say well she had some wrong thoughts too. But she was theologically aware and that shows up uh, later on in her prayer. But over the years she kept praying she would not give up. May I suggest to you that happens to you and me. We pray Uh, I'm praying for a member of my extended family, that I am sure is not a believer. Claims to be, but I don't think that individual is. And I've been praying for years and years and years, and God has absolutely not done anything from my human perspective. That doesn't mean he's not working his heart. But I am not aware of any change occurring. I think that's important understand there are delayed answers we talked about that early on in this course. the second thing I want you to see is sometimes watch it child of God the reason why he is delaying he wants our thinking to be changed Lord I want a I want a baby then the end result is Lord. I want a baby, and I'll give him back to you for your use. See the change in attitude? Now, how did that come? That came over that extended period of years where she kept praying and praying and felt like God wasn't there, but he really was. Okay, Lord, I'll give him back to you. Amen? Now, there's the context. Uh, Another part of it that I think is important is to understand the environment out of which she brings this prayer to the scripture for us. And that's her concept of God. Let's talk about that a second. This is a uh, polytheistic world in which she is living. And by the way, we're sheltered from a lot of it, but we're in a polytheistic world as well. Uh, I I was reading, and I don't know how they come up with this kind of statistic. I'll take them at their word. Uh, The the Hindu religion has 330 million gods. Now, how did they figure that out? I I don't know. Uh, Let's put it this way. They have a bunch. 330, I don't know. They have a bunch. That's polytheistic. Uh, When you go to... Uh, this word that we study and look at it in the Old Testament, you know what we see? We see the worship of Baal. Now let's talk about that a second. There are 250 references to Baal in the Old Testament. 250 of them. Somebody's counted them. I'll take their word for it. But as you study the scriptures, you know what you're going to discover? Baal is called the queen of heaven in Jeremiah. Uh, Eshtar in Babylon. Ashtaroth in the Canaanite religion. And the sun god in Egypt. In other words, there's a widespread worship of Baal and many, many other gods. Hannah's not caught up in that. We'll see it when we get to our prayer. Secondly, she has had a crisis in her life, and finally God has blessed her with a child, and she is grateful and is expressing her appreciation. So I want to say to you, uh, many times we will go through difficult times. We'll have all kinds of problems that may surface and be, have a rather lengthy longevity. But God will eventually come through, and, and we need to praise Him and, and honor Him in our prayer life. Amen? Now, that's what Hannah's going to do. Now, I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 2, and we're going to see this prayer. Then Hannah prayed. Now, many of them call it a song of thanksgiving. The word here in the Hebrew, and it's translated into English, is a prayer. Now, you could look at it literally and say, well, maybe it's a song of thanksgiving. But it's her prayer. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. That's he, she's rejoicing in Yahweh, the God of Israel. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I read, the horn is uh, a symbol of the strength. So her strength is being encouraged. That's uh, verse 1 as well. Uh, I then notice my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. She's more bold in her willingness uh, uh, to speak out because of the deliverance that she has. And she says, And I rejoice in your salvation, your deliverance. You've let me have this baby. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now, when you get to verse 2, here is the heart of her prayer. And there are three parts that are very important. And it's going to help us to understand how she remained true to her theology as she prayed. Notice, uh, in verse 2, the first part of the prayer. There is no one holy like the Lord, the purity of God. Indeed there are no one there is no one besides you. She's monotheistic, not polytheistic. There's only one God. There's none beside you. I say the first point is purity the purity of God. The second point is the supremacy of God. And then it goes on, indeed there is no one besides you. Nor, third point, nor is there any rock like our Elohim, Elohim, the Almighty One. There's no rock like our Elohim, his ability, the ability of God. So when we see her prayer, it's three parts, the purity of God, the supremacy of God, and the ability of God. Now, let's talk about each of those. For just a couple of minutes, I haven't got very long, but notice he said there is. She says there is no one holy like the Lord. That's First Samuel chapter one, chapter or chapter two, verse two. There is none holy like the Lord. The word holy describe God describes God throughout the Bible. Well, an interesting fact that I found is when you go through the book of Isaiah, the word uh, holy one is used 25 times in that one book. So the idea is wanting us to understand God is holy. And and uh, Hannah's saying, there is none holy like our Yahweh. And when you look at the scripture, it talks about his name is holy, the temple is holy, heaven is holy, his habitation is holy. The holy mountain of God, the holy covenant of God, the holy land. God is holy. So she begins this section of her prayer by saying, There is no one holy like God. And you go to other scriptures, and it says, uh, and I'm not going to give them to you now except for one in the New Testament. It says over and over again, child of God, be ye holy. Why? I am. So be ye holy because I am. Be holy like me. Now, I look at that, and I and I get to thinking about it. Be ye holy like I am. Yeah, I'm going to share something with you that maybe I ought not to. But I, I like to be transparent because it seems to encourage other people. I've got cancer, and you know that. And <clears throat> I'm taking special kinds of medicine that's keeping me going. I can get up at 5 o'clock, and I take my full pills, and I say, if I just stopped doing this, I'd die. Humanly speaking, I would die. You know, I'd be getting to get to you after a while. But now I've got this problem with my leg, and I have to go to therapy twice a week. I have to do therapy one hour in the morning, one hour in the afternoon, just so I can keep it limbered up and hopefully will be better. Now, here's where I'm going. I live with that every day, and it saps my strength. And sometimes, are you ready? I can murmur. And beyond that, I can be hard on my wife. Say, Pastor, you're not supposed to do that. You're a child of God. You've been in ministry. Hey, just being honest. Amen? Be holy. But sometimes I'm not. And one of the things that I do is Lord, I pray this way, Lord, help me to be sweet. Help me to be sweet. Amen? Why? Because He's holy and that's the way I'm supposed to be. Now notice the second one. No one is holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you we've only got a couple of minutes but when you read in Deuteronomy 32 and there are many others 32 and verse 39 you know what it says see now I am he there is no other God but me see she's polytheistic that's Deuteronomy in uh, verse 32 verse 39 chapter 32 verse 39 I am he. I put to death. I give life. I have wounded. And it is I who heal. And no one can get away from my sovereignty in their life. He is God. Now I want you to see this. Now I'm running out of time. But when we talk about his supremacy, that ought to cause us to want to have intimacy. His supremacy, awareness of his supremacy, ought to lead to intimacy, a desire for intimacy with him. And let me illustrate it. It'll take a couple of seconds. When I became president at Southeastern, Dr. Gannett, one of my spiritual heroes, I was asking him about fundraising and so on. He said, you don't want to talk to me. You want to talk to Dr. Walbert, the president of Dallas Seminary. Yeah, right. He called him up and had Dr. Walvoort meet me at the Dallas airport for lunch. Just the two of us. Now, we talked about fundraising a little bit, but we also talked about a lot of theology. But I tell you that in almost a braggadocious, well, maybe it is braggadocious. The point is, what a man. And because of who he was, I wanted to get to know him. Supremacy leads to intimacy. That makes sense? Mark Bailey, here we go again, who is the president at Dallas currently, I went to school with it. We're on a first name basis. Is that braggartosis? Maybe. But you still get the point. Amen. So I want to say to you, there's no one besides you, Hannah says. And that ought to lead you, if you think like that, think theologically, his purity, his supremacy, and then one more, Nor is there any rock like our God, our Elohim. There's no one that has the ability that he has. Remember, I put to death, I give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal. Know what Isaiah 26 says? Trust in the Lord always. Why? For God is an everlasting rock. Yesterday we had rain. I have a fishing pond. With this, I'll be through. I have a fishing pond out front, and when the dry spells come and not a little, not a lot of rain, my pond begins to drop. It was down about six, eight inches yesterday afternoon, but in about an hour, God filled it up, <laughs> and the water was up to the top of the pier in my pond. And when my son and his mother-in-law and wife came over for dinner, they got stuck at the crossroads because the water was going over top of the road into the lake. God is a powerful God. He can fill that pond up just right quickly. Amen? All right. That's the way we're to think. He's God that's pure. He's a God that is supreme. And he's a God that is powerful. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity of knowing you and learning from your word how to pray. Thank you for the opportunity. In Jesus' name.